you. How are your New Year's resolutions going right now? Did you make any? I'd love to hear. Anybody make a New Year's resolution and it was like, what was I thinking? I'm going to start with the, like, I don't have to boast that I'm doing so good. Is there anybody who's like, that was just the silliest, most epic fail? Why, why was I doing that? All right, Shatara, what was yours? <laughs> I need to know. So, I bought this sourdough starter, like, two years ago. <laughs> so funny. I got, uh, Michael got me a bread making set two years ago too. And it's all, I did it twice. Rebecca Wynn helped me do it the first time and then I haven't done it. I did it one more time. No. But I'm like, this is the year, right? Um, anybody else have like a, what was I thinking? It doesn't have to be this year. A previous year, like I started the, I've started this 150 times. And I'm My not. problem is I don't make that is so funny i this year i decided i so you guys know that i design i'm a graphic designer and so i spend a lot of my time like this you know and it, you just feel like your whole body like hurts by the end of the day and so my biggest it's not even a resolution is to but it's to move more but part of the reason is I'm now having a standing desk on my dining room table that, like, doesn't make it harder to move. So I've been, like, it's been really funny. I've been doing, like, squats, like, while designing, you know, or whatever. And so one of the New Year's resolutions that we often start with, and I hope actually is one that continues for us, is that we are wanting to study God's Word. A lot of us kind of start a new year with a desire to be refreshed in studying God's Word um, and, you know, some of us might be picking a Bible reading plan, reading through the Bible in a year, or I'm just going to be more consistent. Um, but one of the things that I'm really excited about as we study the book of Titus together is that, first of all, this is God's grace to each of us that we can encourage and, and hold one another accountable. We can continue to push one another in godliness. But a key theme, actually, of Titus is that when we know God, it will transform the way that we live. And so there's a continual call for holiness within the book of Titus, but it is centered on the fact, like uh, Paul will have these moments where he like does little gospel explosions that he's intending for us to like, it, for it to, us to fuel our love for God, which if our love for God is fueled, then we grow in our love for him. We want to, we hunger for him more and then it will produce holiness and godly living. And so um, I pray that this is grace to us as we start a year. And even as I begin to dive into today's teaching, I want you to know that the main idea um, that we're gonna be talking about that I continue, I want you to feel and to um field drive home is that um, this, uh, hold on, I want us to be a women, uh, be marked by a maturing women, that we are maturing women, so I can't speak, um, that we are maturing women growing in love for God, and it overflows into um, our daily lives. Um, but the context of the book of Titus is really interesting, and I'm excited to be studying this specific book at this specific time, because it's a letter to a church plant. I don't know if you, like, if you got a chance to do this study beforehand um, and got to read any of the passage. One of the things that Alyssa did mention in the book, is, um, in our workbook, is that there is a homework list. And some of us may have seen that there was an encouragement today to have read through the book of Titus a few times and to listen to um, the Bible Project, if you could. Um, but if you did read it, then you would have learned that this was a book to a church plant that was started a few years prior. We don't really know exactly how long, but it's a fledgling church plant. Titus was left there. We're going to kind of dig in a little bit more um, throughout the throughout the time, but that he has been he has been left there in order to help that church build up and be established and to figure out the structures to fight. Um, fight for godliness, help them fight for godliness. But what I love specifically um, is that currently, as a per like personally, as a young church planter, I receive a ton of encouragement because as I read it, I, I find that this is not a flashy like manual on how to plant a church. 
I go to a lot of church planting conferences, actually, about, like, how does one, like, set up a thriving church. And this is actually pretty contrary to a lot of the things that I hear. This is a very ordinary encouragement to the believers. They are um, intending for, Paul is intending for the church in Crete to grow through them personally knowing Jesus, for them fighting sin, for them discipling one another, establishing and appointing leaders. And so I hope that we're encouraged as we begin this study so that we can um, just grow um, ourselves and seeing that to grow a church, um, it is not requiring to have the best marketing scheme or the best marketing strategy or to be super cool or edgy, but it's just to be faithful and to be faithful in our love for God. So before we jump in any further, I'm going to pray for our time in studying God's word. And then we will get started. Father, I am so thankful for um, the opportunity today to study the book of Titus and to get started with these women. I pray, God, that you would be with us, um, that you would, um, your Holy Spirit would work despite um, our frail attempts and our jumbled words and um, even just our tiredness coming into this evening. Um, and God, that you would. Um, how, do your work in our lives, whatever that may be. So be glorified in us tonight. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So Alyssa mentioned that we would be using the um, this Women of the Word bookmark. And I want, before we jump into that, I want to kind of go over what the five Ps are, what does one do with this. Um, I'm going to be operating my slides from my phone over here. Um, so our hope as you study the um, as you study each week, like Alyssa said, it's not that we are not like fans of using workbooks or like different Bible study guides, but we want to equip you to de- we want to demystify is kind of the word, like demystify the study of scripture. As we think about like what hangs us up from being able to study scripture, you know, in that New Year's resolution style, some of the thoughts we might have is that we, uh, we don't know how to study God's word. Sometimes it's self-control. Sometimes it's lack of desire. Sometimes we think it's going to be boring. But um, we are going to find, I want to remove a few of those obstacles today and even paint a high view of what, um, what God's word, studying God's word will be. But one of those things is I want you to feel equipped that no matter what, where, no matter where you are, no matter what season it is, if you don't have a workbook, you could actually know and understand and dive deeply in God's word. And so the five Ps is taken from, like Alyssa said, it's taken from Jen Wilkins' book called Women of the Word. Um, And we actually, most of us have been given a copy at some point. If you don't own a copy, TCC actually like freely gifts them because we really believe in this method. And so you don't have to read the book in order to know how to do the method. But the book really helps you understand the method. But we took the main ideas from the book and consolidated it down into a bookmark. And that's what this is. So on the front of your bookmark, you'll see that there are five P's that are listed up here. Purpose, perspective, patience, process, and prayer. And what I'm going to do tonight, I'm going to tell you what each of these means. And then I am actually going to teach a little differently than everybody else, is that I'm going to actually teach through my four verses while using the five Ps, kind of showing you how I would do it at home so that it builds your confidence in like, what should I do, you know, when I approach this? So when we approach God's word, a lot of times we have a desire, we think that, um, it's like a, a magic eight ball that we're going we're gonna to open it up and we're just going to be like, should I take this job? Yes. Or, you know, or we also can think of it like we envision this dream comfy, I actually think of Steph's comfy chair in her reading room. There's like a dream chair with a wonderful cup of coffee and a blanket or in a cool coffee hipster Um, hipster coffee shop and we're like sitting there studying and thinking for hours and we think in order to approach God's word we've got to have it in a certain way or it's got to do a certain thing for us but we actually really need to think about our time in God's word as 
like we are in, we are gaining knowledge little by little, making a long term investment that we are becoming like Bible literate. That this is a book of literature that we are trying to. Um, understand and grow and steward, but it's not just any book of literature. It's God's inspired word. And so it will change us and affect us. And so as we approach it, we've got to come to the text and we've got to ask, what is the purpose of the book that I'm approaching right now? Typically, we're going to take a book of the Bible and we're going to try to read it from front to back. And we're going to ask the question, what is this piece of the puzzle? Now, you know you've got in your workbook, you've got the, um, let's see, I'm just trying, the pretty colorful chart, the timeline of God's big picture. When we come to the question of purpose, we're going to be asking, where does this fall in to the big picture of God's storyline. So you can even come here and be like, it's literally right here on the timeline or whatever. Um, But you can also see that this is what, like I'm following along on the bookmark. So if you're trying to figure out purpose, this is the timeline here. And so you're saying, where is it in in the timeline? Perspective, I'm going to be gaining perspective on who wrote this book. Why did they write it? What are they trying to communicate here? The third one is patience. And I'm going to skip, we'll like go through this each with the passage. But patience is allowing enough space and time for the, for the process of studying to affect us and to not think, oh, I read a chapter a day, like, isn't that good enough, you know? Or, oh, I've, I've done the thing, like, I want to skip to the commentaries, or I want to listen to the sermon. It's, like, actually a part of the process to be encouraged to go slow and to be patient as you study God's Word. Then is process. Now, on the back side of your bookmark is the actual process. So you've got the five Ps on one side, and on the back side is the process. The process is what we would typically think of when we think of Bible study. It's where we make observations of the text. It's where we are going to interpret the text and apply the text to our lives. And the last P could really be the first, second, third, fourth, fifth P, sixth P. It's literally, it's prayer that you should be doing throughout the whole process of your time in the Word. And so... Um, when you are studying in a week, what you're going to want to do is just like, I, I honestly would encourage you to go with the outline until, you know how we teach kids to ride a bike with training wheels on, and then we slowly get the freedom to move beyond it until you feel like so confident with this structure, I would say just use the training wheels for a little bit. So on the second page where you've got the schedule and it has the studying the passage, what should you do as you study Titus? Well, maybe you've got five days. There's seven days in a week until we meet next time. So on the first day you're studying, read the next passage just for comprehension, just to figure out what in the world it's saying. Maybe listen to it. Try to take it in as many times so that you're just getting like a, not a zoomed in version, but a zoomed out version of the breadth of the discussion of the passage. Days two and three, you are going to be going through the process question. So maybe day one, you should be focusing on the purpose and perspective as you are thinking it through. Then day three, and uh, day three, two and three, I'm sorry, is going to be really on the patience and process where you are going to go to the back of this bookmark. And you're just going to answer as many of the questions as you can in whatever fashion you can. And I'm going to show you one of the methods that I did that was really helpful to me. Is I am not a handwriter and I'm not a real big journaler. And so, and even in my study, I like to just type to like keep it going. So I actually turned this bookmark into a Google Doc for me that I would copy and paste every time I wanted to study that has these questions like written out that I could just like fill in and work through. I could copy a thought here and I could just keep it going. And then I could have at the end a Google Doc of me working through the book of Titus. So, I mean, I'm happy to share it with you, but you also could just easily just type up these questions and leave enough blank space between them. Um, But you're just gonna work through 
these simple questions. And in it, have you ever been in a sermon where you're like, what, how did they even get that? How did they even notice that? <coughs> Through this, you should be able to get to a point of deeper understanding of the passage. Sometimes some pastors are going a little beyond where they should go in the passage. But through this, you will get through the actual meaning of the text. You will find yourself even stirred up in your own affections. I know that when I sometimes will use like a workbook study, I'm just, I genuinely am like moving into like fast mom mode where I'm like, answer the question, answer the question, answer the question. And I don't like let it always like have its effect on my heart. By getting into the driver's seat and having to like not have another resource helping me, I, like the truth is, it's the same idea. When you teach when you teach someone else to do something, or when you tell somebody how to do it, it's like they could probably replicate it. But when they have to teach somebody else what to do, it all of a sudden they like have a greater sense of like confidence and like it, it really sinks in. And as we study God's word through like our own method and through our own way of doing it, then all of a sudden the, the Holy Spirit will use it to illumine certain parts of our hearts. We'll use it to really embed lessons into our minds and it will become very fluent to us. And even as Michael talked about on Sunday, like our desire as a church to be able to like walk up to somebody and say like, here's a passage that encourages me, you know, that I was studying this week. A lot of that comes out of and is bubbled over through our personal investment in taking studying God's word seriously um, because it's just going to become so ingrained in us. So day uh, two and three, you're going to spend a lot of time in process. And day five, you're still in process. You're not just going to pray only on day five. Um, you should be praying on all the days. Day five you're, is where you're going to move in your mind from what does the text mean to how does it apply to my life and how should it change me? I think a lot of times I really want to get to that part on day one. Maybe even before I've finished reading the first verse, I'm already asking, God, what does this mean? What does this mean? What does this mean? What does this mean? But if I allow this simmering and this wrestling and this wondering this whole time, the Holy Spirit's been working that whole time. But by day five, I'm probably able to really like draw out what is it that the Holy Spirit wants to say to me right now? And so writing that out and then ha- allowing it to change me. The, the process of scripture study is not simply to accrue more knowledge. So I want you to hear that. Like you're not coming. I'm not saying you have to be a seminarian to study God's word. You know, you don't have to like know all the answers. The process that God's word is living and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. It will have its effect on you. It will change you. Um, And it's not just simply for knowledge accrual. However, I want to pause and say that not in all seasons can you study God's word in this depth all the time. And so I don't want you to hear in my mind that if you aren't doing this every single day for the rest of your life, you aren't a godly Christian. Like, that's not what it is. There's seasons for both types of reading. And even right now, one of my commitments is that I'm doing kind of both. Like, I want to personally be reading lightly through larger chunks of the Bible, but I've been given God's grace right now in being in women's Bible study where I'm diving deeply into a passage. And so I was encouraged by Jen Wilkin in a Risen Motherhood podcast one time. She was talking about in the little years, sometimes it feels hard and impossible, or you might be in a work setting where you're working like from seven to seven, and you're like, how in the world does one spend all of this time all the time studying God's word like this. And she said, we have to reorient our mind about the idea of quiet time. We need to, we need to be abiders. We need to devour God's word. We need God's word more than just the hour in a quiet chair. We need God's word all the time. We do need to study daily. We do need to listen to his word and consume it in large portions. But she said to young moms specifically, what would it look like if you just were listening and reading for multiple days, but like literally one day a week, you gave up one nap time where you worked through one book and you got through the first two toddler years of your child, of your child's life. And like, I made it through a single book, but I understood it. Like you grew in biblical literacy and that's beautiful too. 
And so I think we need to kind of reframe what is Bible reading. I'm not saying that this method is what you have to do forever and always, but this is the method for deep Bible reading that will really help you illumine and understand the text. So we are actually going to get into Titus now, not just the method, um, but I hope you understand the method through us going through it now. So we're going to move to um, the purpose of Titus. Um, some of you guys know this about me, but or our household at Christmas, we have a tradition. Oops. We have a tradition. It's really Michael's tradition where he always puts together a huge puzzle in a shorted period of time. And that's just like his favorite thing about Christmas. It means that Christmas has really arrived. Um, I think it's a terrible tradition. I cannot imagine. <laughs> I cannot imagine sitting in one place for three days straight, looking at tiny pieces and thinking around the clock. <laughs> but occasionally, I'll come over one night, just like a week and a half ago. He was like, "Would you come do the puzzle with me?" And I was like, "Okay, <laughs> you know, like this is my act of love to you." I'm, like, tired at 10 o'clock at night. I don't really want to think. I want to scroll my phone is what I want to do (laughs) right now. But I went to the table. And it's just really overwhelming sometimes to see all these pieces that you don't understand. What, What is it and where does it go? And so my method specifically of approaching a puzzle is that I don't look for what piece goes in this spot. I look at the piece... And then I look at the picture on the box, and I go, where are you in this box? And then I start to group it by, like, zone. So I'm like, okay, you are a mountain, and you're going to be over here. And so I start to create, like, pockets of, like, zones of where the pieces are going to go so that then I can approach it in a little bit smaller way. Well, when we approach the book of Titus, it's a little bit like that, where we have to, like, look at this piece and go, hmm, like, what, where is this? Where does this fit? And so, um, like we said, you can can go to the big picture storyline, but there's also kind of four main, when we think about the storyline of scripture, we typically would use four categories. We would say creation, I mean, truly the first two happen, like, that the first three chapters so you've got creation and you've got the fall and then you've got rest or or, I mean I'm see which way we specifically say it sometimes we say new creation um hold on we we say in this one are we doing yeah okay creation fall redemption okay sometimes we change out your word so creation fall redemption is when Christ dies on the cross the gospel and then new creation is when her restoration is when he's going to come again. So in the book of Titus, right now, it's an epistle. And we're going to talk about the context in a second. But it is between Christ's life, death, and ascension and before he comes again. We're actually in the same time period. We currently live right here as well. Um, we, what, what is happening is that the early church is forming, so after Christ ascends, the early church forms through the book of Acts, the gospel is spreading, and this gospel has spread to Crete, which is the city that they're in, and the church is needing greater structure and reminders of the gospel, and they are waiting for the second coming of Christ. And we are like them, that we are redeemed people waiting for restoration. Now the next slide is... um, this doesn't necessarily fit into any of the questions on women of the word. I was kind of struggling as to which one this is, but um, I threw it here. It could have been in perspective too, but here's the outline of the book. Big picture when we approach it. If you were to go, if this is, I'm literally just showing you what's in your workbook. What is the structure of the book of Titus? First, it has an opening, which is what we are sitting in tonight. Then in, uh, it will move to the occasion that Paul is writing the letter, which is a need for proper leadership. Then it's going to move into the problem, which is false teachers. 
then it's going to go into Christian living in contrast to the false teachers. Then the problem is going to be restated where he's going to say the false teachers are not, not good. And then the closing encouragement. So this is the big picture of where we're at. And so tonight we're going to be in the opening. Um, still in purpose, we're kind of orienting ourselves. So why was this book written? What's it going to say? This is also key themes that are in your workbook. So don't like scribble to write them down. Um, so and this is from the ESV study Bible. Um, and as, as I read it, if you've studied any of them, I would love to hear you like jot down in the margin. Would there, did you, do you agree with these key themes? Would you add or take anything away? Um, but the first one we see is that the gospel produces godliness in the lives of believers. There's no legitimate separation between belief and behavior. One's deeds will either prove or disprove one's claims to know God. It is vitally important to have godly men serving as past elders and pastors. True Christian living will draw others to the gospel. Good works will have an important place in the lives of the believers. It is important to deal clearly and firmly with doctrin uh, doctrinal and moral error in the church. And the gospel is the basis for Christian ethics. So this is the big picture. This is the puzzle piece. This is where we're headed and where it fits right now on the timeline. Now we're going to go into perspective. Perspective is, uh, Jen Wilkin will often use this analogy, but it's, we call it like reading the envelope. At Christmas, we got a lot of Christmas cards, right? And before you like ripped into it, you probably first checked to make sure it came to you. It was supposed to come to you and not to your neighbor. And then you kind of for fun were wanting, hoping that they had a return address so you could know who it was coming from. And in the same way, before we just jump into a text, we should be asking ourselves, who wrote it? To whom was it written? Why was it written? So I'm going through the piece again. Uh, what style? So who wrote it? When was it written? To whom was it written? In what style was it written? That means like, is it a historical book or is it poetry? Is it prophecy? I got to like know, like when I see that Christmas card, is this a Christmas card or is this a bill? Like I kind of got to know what I'm opening right now. And why was this book written? Do I have to respond and pay the bill or do I get to hang it up cute on my happy door away from the bills? And so um, let's look at the book of Titus and see who we find here. So who wrote the book of Titus? Paul, and that's actually the central idea of our text, the opening, is the opening part of the letter. I, Paul, I'm, I'm the one who wrote it. When did he write it? So he wrote it in A.D. 60, or in the 60s, we don't know specifically, in the 60s. Um, it's likely after his, um, mission, his uh, it's probably a fourth missionary journey after the book of Acts. Um, and he is probably within the last like last few years of his life, maybe even within the last year of his life. Um, he is uh, probably um, left Rome from an imprisonment on another journey. We hear at the end that he's in Nicopolis, or going to spend time in the Nicopolis. Um, he's, we don't know if he shared the gospel right then, but at some point he established the church in Crete. And he's come through, he was there, he left Titus there. And that's who he's writing it to. So Titus is who's receiving this letter. And it's largely assumed that, he, that it would have been writ, read to the church at Crete. So it's written to Titus, but to the Cretan church as well. Now, who is Titus? Titus is, I love the description we're going to see. He's a true true child in the common faith of Paul. He's Paul's like associate in ministry, a younger associate in ministry, um, who was likely converted, we don't know, likely converted through Paul's ministry. If not, you know, not exactly related, he definitely was largely influential. Um, we see that that Timothy is similar to, I mean, Paul, Titus is similar to Timothy. So they, he, they both have received this kind of designation by Paul of being a child in the common faith. We know that he's Greek. Um, 
He was a devoted and trusted associate of Paul. And some other places that you'll see him um, is in Galatians. Um, it's, he is used, he is not circumcised, and he is used as an argument against the Judaizers, saying that he um, is still in good standing and is clearly a believer, even though he's not circumcised. So he's like intentionally not circumcised to teach the church that that is not, the Mosaic law is not required. Um, he often, he's most likely the person who was put before the Jerusalem council in Acts. So the Jerusalem council is where like um, Peter and the other apostles meet and are like trying to test the validity of Paul and also like does, um, do they need to be circumcised? And he's like literally put before them in Acts. It's not, he's not named in Acts, but that's believed who, the, who he was in that moment. He's most commonly seen in uh, the letter of 2 Corinthians. And so he actually is the one who delivers the letter of 2 Corinthians. He probably delivered the letter we don't have of the second uh, the letter we don't have to the Corinthians. It's called the severe letter. Um, and he is really used to working in difficult and sensitive situations within the troubled Corinthian church. Um, we can also reasonably infer from second Corinthians he was also asked to like gather a collection for the saints like of money um, we can we can uh, reasonably infer that he possessed considerable people skills either naturally acquired or Holy Spirit given and he was a man of unquestioned integrity especially with regard to financial resources because he was often the one who was going actually to make the collections from the church now, who is the church at Crete? Um, the church at Crete, they are an island about 100, roughly 100 miles off of Greece in the Mediterranean Sea. This is, it's fascinating to learn about them. They were a maritime empire. They were a pretty advanced um, people, um, and so they were a large influence. Paul was likely really interested in the gospel going there because, one, God desired to save people in Crete, but it also was a part of strategy for him because it was a hub. It was situated to be a hub of the gospel spreading because it was an island and it was such a significant force. If there was a health, if there was healthy local churches here, then it would, people were constantly coming in and out and it would be a source of the gospel spreading. But unfortunately, and we're going to learn this even from Clarissa's passage, Crete was not known for the greatest of things. I don't know if you have read ahead in, in Titus, but it says that even one of, of their own calls Crete, Cretans, they're like liars, lazy gluttons, like evil beasts. <laughs> and so um, this is who this city is. And I actually was in my head going, like I wonder what is the equivalent, if there's a phrase about of these people that like secularly was known like the Cretans are just terrible people like what is there a modern day equivalent and part of that would like Vegas came to mind but then the Kardashians came to mind <laughs> and I told Michael I was laughing the other day I was like I have literally things I have never googled the Kardashians I would do not recommend it I got into a deep hole and I was like I think that's a pretty accurate representation of the the like idea and the view that people had when they heard of the Cretans. It was kind of like, ugh. And that's the people that this early church has been established in. This is interesting though. We don't know when these Cretans heard and believed the gospel, but we do know that the gospel the Cretans were there at Pentecost. It actually says that in Acts 2.11 that Cretans heard the gospel. Um so, hypothetically, one would imagine that they heard the gospel, they came back, the, they are, it's spreading. Paul maybe has had some interactions with them, but the, the, it's a fledgling church that's only known the gospel for a few years. There was relatively a significant um, amount of Jews on Crete, um, and so they actually had, like, Roman protection, so there was actually a, Rome, a, a Jewish presence on Crete. Um, and so Titus was being assigned the task of, of forming these gatherings into balanced functioning churches. Now, this actually, I find such encouragement from this because I'm like, this kind of reminds me, like has a soft spot for TCC in my heart as I think about Crete. I'm not saying Ann Arbor is like 
the Kardashians by any means, but there's a, it's a young fledgling church in a hub of an area where people come in and out, has great gospel opportunity, and they're at a place of needing leadership and like the next level of growth and development and discipleship. Now, the next question on our bookmark when we think about perspective is, what style is it? It's a letter. It's specifically an epistle. Those those words are the same. But it's also considered, within that category, it's considered a pastoral epistle. So it's one of three letters. Um, First first and second Timothy and Titus fall into a category of pastoral epistles that Paul writes not specifically to a church, but to an individual to tell them how to instruct and build up the church. And these are the last letters of Paul. This is like final words. Paul is having a moment where he's realizing that, or not, he's not having a moment, but he's done enough ministry and churches are, are starting to grow enough, but he's knowing that like his life is coming to an end and he's trying to establish churches beyond himself with structures that will last for generations to come. And that's what the pastoral epistles are. Why was it written? We're going to find in the first verse of next week that it's to put what remains into order. To a, that's the phrase that's used in the, next, in the next passage. To continue establishing the church, to establish elders, to fight off the false teachers that are coming in that are teaching contrary to the gospel, and then to train up members for godly living. Um, now, what we can imagine about the church at Crete is that we know at best they had some false teachers among them. One could imagine through drawing out the fact that they were from the Cretan culture. We don't, we don't think that they were like the Corinthian church and that they were like full of debauchery. But we do think that they're having a hard time, that there is a disconnect between what they say, they profess that they believe, and the actions, external actions that are coming that are evident. And so there's a heavy emphasis here. And so Paul is saying that in order for us, for believers, to like continue to thrive and mature, we need to see them develop in their godly practices from their belief in the gospel. Now, the question that's kind of implied as you ask this question of perspective, you've got, you're looking at the envelope, is now how will these thoughts change how they would what we think they would have thought when they read the message. Like, when they read the letter, what are they thinking? Um, I would imagine, this is all supposition, but as this grounded supposition, that Titus likely is really excited for this letter. He probably would have devoured this letter from a trusted mentor and friend where he's been left on an island. I'm in, like, I'm in my head going, he's been left on an island in a, you know, of, the, of the Kardashians. Um, and he was, uh, it was from his beloved mentor and friend. Paul was trustworthy. If the church was in a hard spot, Titus probably really longed for Paul's input. Um, I often think about, I often will tell Michael, like, I really wish that there was a guidebook on like how we ought to make decisions for our church. And like, this is, Paul, Titus didn't get a guidebook, but he got like specific counsel from his teacher and leader on what to do next. And so I would imagine he was like, okay, step one, elders, you know, and that is probably just grace to him. He also received probably a lot of encouragement because throughout the, the book, there's going to be these like nuggets of gospel explosion that happen. Like you see Paul, and I've, I've often wondered, I'm, my brain has been retrained in motherhood to like get off on tangents really easily. And Paul often gets off on tangents about the gospel. It's like he kind of gets lost in a moment and like dives deeply into enjoying and delighting in God for a second. And so I would imagine that as, as Titus is reading it, he's like, oh, that was a good encouragement. Like, I really needed that. Yes, thank you for rooting me in truth, compelling me towards godly living. Now, as this letter is read to the Cretan church, how are they hearing it? Now, if they were, uh, if they were wise and if they were like longing for God's word, I'm sure that they would have read it with sobriety, like the Apostle Paul 
is telling them this instruction, they probably would have taken it pretty seriously. Um, but there are some who are probably a little offended because there's going to be some combativeness to some of the false teaching and the doctrine, and they're going to be like, this is not right. And so there's going to be some who are at least frustrated. Some would have been contentious upon reading this. Um, but I would, I would pray that there was humble, spiritful believers who are eager to receive this and continue establishing the church. Now, typically, we're going to talk about patience. You guys have already had patience with me. Um, and I would be, it's kind of funny that I would want to like skip the patience part because that's the whole point, to not skip the patience part. Um, but this is where we have to, in our mind, like I said earlier, have the low key, like we are on crockpot mode as we are studying God's word. We are thinking deeply and applying it to our everyday life. You know, um, like I said earlier, we were talking about like New Year's resolutions and, and I always think about exercise specifically. Um, and I am not one who like deeply loves to exercise. I actually really hate it. And so I had to several years ago, like retrain my brain to make exercise fun I like looked at it as an opportunity to get away from my kids and have childcare and go to the gym. And it like became a treat to go to the gym. But then my life changed and my kids got sick every single time we went to gym childcare. And life got too busy for me to use gym childcare. And all of a sudden I thought, oh no, I can't go to the gym. I can't exercise anymore. That's not true. I had to learn that in order to exercise, I would have to like bring it into my everyday life. And so in patience, I'm sorry, my phone. No, is it my phone or is it the TV? I know everything's about to die over there. In patience, um, I, there's a commitment. How this connects with exercise is that, um, hold on. I just have to read it because I've got to get my brain around it again. Um, Yes, okay. If I'm, I've had to retrain my brain as to what, what does my body need, and I have to learn to walk on the, walk on the treadmill and to fit it into little pieces of, of my day. Now, um, if I looked at my attempt of doing one 10-mile walk on the treadmill and asked it to keep me healthy, would I be putting the wrong weight on that walk? Yes, that one 10-minute walk is not necessarily going to re, like, make me a healthy person. But was that 10-minute walk important and vital for me to grow? Yes. And in the same way, as we look at God's Word, we can't, in moments where we're like, I don't have two hours to study God's Word right now. I can't study. We have to rightly see that five minutes to even 90 seconds of scrolling scrolling our phone and reading God's word is going to have a lasting effect. But we do have to carve out more significant time. And so this is me giving knowledge to the fact that it's a low, slimmer, simmer process. It's a long commitment to studying God's word. Sorry, I'm going to jump on. I feel bad skipping patience. That's my, <laughs> me trying to give it. But now we're going to go into the process specifically. Now we're actually going to read the text. And I'm really excited to get here. So let's finally read. First, or let's read Titus 1, 1 through 4. We're going to be asking the questions through, um, through our uh, process. We're going to be working through three categories, observation, interpretation, and application. That's on the back of your bookmark. And so if this is, these are the questions that are going to be guiding our time. So our text says, right here, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true child in a common faith, 
grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. So we are at the introduction of the book. And for me, in order to understand it, I love Paul. There's just moments of clauses that get really confusing and you're a little bit like, okay, hold on, hold on. Like, what exactly is this saying? So I had to work on a diagram to figure out what clauses go with what here. So what, where we're at, and this is again in the observation section, Paul is identifying himself as the author of the book, and he's saying to them that he is known as a servant, and he is known as an apostle. I'm going to work through the structure. No, I think I'm going to just do word by word. So servant here is meaning, this is when we're doing like looking up words through, literally, I did not use any type of, like, special type of Bible resource. Just Google definitions, Oxford definitions. Servant, I am carrying out the will of someone else. I am doing the work of somebody else. So he says, of all things he could say, of all things he could save himself, he is doing the work of God on God's behalf. It's also, it is the Greek word doulos, which would mean bondservant or slave. And he says that he is an apostle. In this moment, he's establishing his authority. He's saying, I have authority to speak right now. Titus knows that. And he's saying that, really, to the church at Crete. Um, he, uh, it's kind of like him saying, like, when, when there's an argument happening among my kids and I have to interject and I say, hold on, hold on, I'm the mom here. I get to make the final call. Like Paul is saying that I am the apostle. Now, he's going to start to describe, we see in the next, set, the next clause is saying that I am an apostle for the sake of the faith of God's elect. So this is connected. He's an apostle for the sake of the faith of God's elect. So in their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. So he is, this is basically meaning that his apostleship is in order to teach, like for in order for God's children to grow in knowledge of truth, and that truth is going to lead to godliness. Now we're going to have a moment where there's some key gospel words that are going to be sprinkled in. He's going to teach some theology. And one of the words that's going to trip us up is what word? Elect, right? And right now and tonight, it's not the opportunity for us to dive into a full doctrine of election. And we can talk about that on a totally different night if you would like to. However, what he is trying to show you is that this is God's chosen people. He has been, he is an apostle for God's chosen people to have a knowledge of the truth. And that knowledge of the truth is going to lead towards godliness. The nugget of the gospel that's, that is embedded in God's elect and God's choosing, we often want to get offended specifically on, does that mean God didn't choose others? Was that a specifically Pauline idea? And then will God's choosing of others lead us not to share the gospel with others? Those are kind of the three main questions. First of all, God's choosing of some for salvation is not specifically a Pauline idea. It's seen in Jesus' teaching. Um, uh, we see it as well in other New, Te New Testament epistles. We see it in the choosing of Israel and the choosing of the church. But again, I really don't want us to get so tripped up here that we can't have meaningful discussion further. So if this is an area that you're like, I would really like to talk more about election and salvation, I would love to be able to give some supplemental resources and be able to dive into more specific conversation with you. But he's saying that God's chosen people, he's been given the apostleship so that they would build up, um, be built up in their knowledge and it would lead towards godliness. This is him 
kind of peeking back the lid as to some themes that you're going to see a little bit later on. Do you remember I said in the book of like the Cretans were known for not like living out their faith very well. So he's kind of peeking back the lid there. In the hope of eternal life, this is a clauses to get a little hairy here because you're like, is he is he Paul in the hope of eternal life? Where is eternal life connected? And honestly, it can be connected to either, logically it can be connected to the knowledge of the truth is the hope of eternal life or that Paul is an apostle in the hope of eternal life. Like the stand, he is, a, he is, he is standing in that hope or the knowledge that he's trying to teach is that hope. It honestly doesn't matter a whole lot to the meaning as to which one it is. What we learn about this gospel nugget, this gospel explosion, is that he is standing waiting for salvation, knowing confidently that he will be saved. And this salvation plan that he will be saved one day was promised beforehand before the ages began. But he's also going to tell you a little side fact, an attribute of God. God who never lies. Hold on. Later we're going to hear that the Cretans are always liars. So he is drawing out that God is unchanging. He is true. He is faithful. He has known the plan of salvation he has purposed the plan of salvation from the very beginning of time. He has orchestrated all of humanity to bring about the gospel. And now, at the proper time, he has manifested, I had to Google that one, displayed. He's displayed his word through the preaching which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Now, this is saying here that the, this is, it gets a little hard, that the understanding of what God intended from the very beginning of time is now being fully revealed through the preaching of the word. We're now being, the local church is now being able to understand like when on the Emmaus Road, when Jesus peels back that all of scriptures are pointing to him, that right now, through Paul's ministry and the preaching of the word, not just Paul, all of the apostles, but specifically Paul for these people right now, that this ministry that he's been entrusted to is connecting the dots of all of humanity, God's salvation plan, and is being more fully understood and revealed in this current age. He has been entrusted with this preaching by the command of God, our Savior. So God is the one who gave him these orders. Now we see, like I said earlier, that Paul has moments where he's trying to say something. What he's trying to say, the main idea he is saying is that I wrote the letter, I am a servant of God, I am an apostle of God, and I have authority in this moment. But I'm, getting, I'm going to take the opportunity to teach you some theology because the theology is going to build you up. And it will lead you to godliness. Your knowledge of the truth is going to lead you to godliness. So let me teach you a few theological truths for you to hold on to today. And that is election. God has chosen you. That is that you have a, a hope of eternal life. It's a confident hope. You are going to learn. I'm going to skip ahead. I realize I have a slide for this. Um, so that we have been, we are chosen by God. These are the key truths you see. We have a confident hope that we will experience eternal life. We learn that God never lies. This is one of the questions of like, what attributes of God do you see? He is unchanging. He is faithful. He is true. God's plan of salvation has been promised from before time began and was fully orchestrated by God. So we see that God is sovereign, 
God is eternal. He is the author of history and of salvation. He's intending to implant these truths so that it overflows into godly living and into delight and into worship for them. I won't switch it yet, I guess. Now, the question tonight, and we're going to be wrapping up really soon, is that how do these truths encourage and shape us? We can often live our lives with a case of spiritual amnesia. We can wake up and we can face the day with urgency, going from thing to thing like we always do. But we need reality checks to stop and recall God's grace to us. We were once enemies of God. We need to stop and think like, okay, once I was an enemy of God, I was, hate, I was separated from him. I hated him and I was doing lawless deeds, but God saved me. He gave me a new calling. He made me a holy priesthood of believers. He gave me a new mission. And whatever I'm facing, when I have this reality check, it puts it into perspective. When my to-do list is bigger than me, I have safety to trust that he will accomplish his purposes. When my sin looms large and I'm angry, and things aren't going my way, or I'm sinned against, I can remember that I am holy and set apart and given the Holy Spirit to say no to this particular sin and love anyway. He gives these nuggets of truth to Titus to reorient him as he's facing how to shepherd the church and to reorient the Cretan believers to remind them of the calling that they, they had, that they believed this gospel like, wake up and live in that reality. Enjoy it. Delight in it and meditate on it more fully. Then he's going to help tell them that it is to Titus, like we've said, his true child in a common faith. And then he's going to say that it's grace and peace. And we we often want to be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That just means, like, I love you. Dear, dear, dear Titus. But what that means is that Paul has been like totally covered. He's been totally covered by grace and peace. And that as he faces the challenges of the ministry that he's about to, that he's embarking on, that he is going to be receiving strength. He gives us provision at every moment for everything that we're facing. And he's going to give us inner stability, which in turn strengthens us for the task of godly living and establishing this local church. So this is the setup of the book of Titus. And as we begin our study, as we turn the next few weeks, as we begin to learn about how the gospel leads us towards rightly when we understand the gospel it will lead towards right living i pray that specifically at the beginning of this study we are we ask god for a hunger to know him like this like where we get lost on like gospel moments where we delight in him and we get lost in knowing him deeply and then we would reorient our lives to make him central that he would be a part of our like we we are so hungry for him that he would we would drop it all really to study him and to delight in him fully. Um, and so we are going to be closing. I'm, I don't know if we even want to do discussion questions, Alyssa, because of timing. Sorry, I jam packed a lot into a little bit of time. Um, but we're going we want to do discussions so okay. what I want to do specifically is to take the discussion time to help us apply this so I didn't jump into application so that there would be space for you to be able to think more deeply and apply this to your life so the questions that we're going to be talking about there's more than you can cover so just pick the ones that stand out to you are what are you looking forward to in studying the book of Titus now that you understand where it's headed. What was something that you learned tonight that you didn't know before? 
Paul says that a person's knowledge of God, these are on your table too, so don't stress. Paul says that a person's knowledge of God will lead to godliness. So how do you want to grow in your knowledge of God this year? What do you want to learn about him? And then the, the fourth one is about the theological truths we talked about. Which of these theological truths that Paul packed into the introduction encourages you in a specific way that of something you are facing this week? And then those are the truths that we talked about. And then how does the fact that the local church is God's plan for carrying out his mission encourage or challenge you as you think about our own local church? And in six, God does covers us with divine provision and inner stability, which in turn strengthens us for the task of godly living and establishing this local church. What are ways that you can see God's grace and peace covering you? And how does this grace and peace strengthen you for what you are facing this week? I'm going to pray, and I would love to hear you guys um, talk through these things. Father, I am so thankful for your word, um, for how you work in the midst of us, how you are giving us the opportunity to study the book of Titus. I pray that, Lord, you would, as we uh, begin this journey, Lord, make us women who are hungry for knowing you, who are hungry for knowing your truth.